Really good to be with all of you. Welcome, especially if you're a guest. My name is Brian Hopkins. I'm one of the pastors around Journey. Uh, did you notice our new uh, decor? 1960s acoustical paneling borrowed from the Wilson Auditorium. Any idea why? Why, why is that up there? Symphony. That's exactly right. The Commons is hosting the 2014-2015 Bozeman Symphony. The whole season is right here at the Commons. And they started last night, played to a packed, sold-out house in here. Uh, I milled around yesterday morning a bit while they, they do this paid dress rehearsal thing. And so this room was two-thirds full yesterday morning uh, for the dress rehearsal. And I was milling around out in the lobby with symphony leadership. And so, and I just have to tell you how over the moon the symphony is to get to be here in your building uh, for their symphony season. They're just elated. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. They said again and again and again. And you hear us talking about gathering and digging and going. And I just want to frame this uh, for you in a sense of those three things that we're about as a church community, because you might not think about it like this, that this building really just sits here all week long as your going arm constantly into the community. It's going and it's going and it's going and it's going, sowing seeds of the gospel of Jesus Christ all over this community. So last night there would have been a thousand people in here, lots of them who have no contact whatsoever with a church, no contact whatsoever with the person or people of Jesus Christ. And they, they sat in this room and they said, thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, this is spectacular. And you're going and you're sowing seeds of the gospel. And here's how we think about this. What if somebody who is a symphony patron, they show up for a symphony concert and they go, well, this is cool, what is this place? And then they peel back the layers a bit and they learn that it's this church that built this building to serve the community. And they say, I wanna know more. I wanna know more about those people. I wanna know more about those people's savior. And they find their way into here for a gathering like this, perhaps and have an opportunity for the seed of the gospel that was sown through this community center, how we use this, takes root and begins to sprout and begins to grow to a place of harvest for the sake of somebody's eternity, all because of you. And so Journey, I just wanna say, way to go, way to go, way to go. And it's a ton of work, right? Like all this stuff is borrowed from the Wilson Auditorium and it has to get put up and it was supposed to get taken down at three o'clock. People were in here at three o'clock this morning turning this place around, getting it ready for us. The man lift broke so they couldn't get those down and so that's why we're decorated in 60s vintage acoustical paneling today. But it, it's worth it, Journey. It's absolutely worth it. So way to go. We're talking about failure today. Fail is the name of the message run that we're in. And just for the record, just so we're all on the same page, would you just raise your hand really, really high if you failed sometime in the last seven days? Mine's up, my hand is up. Did you fail in the last, yeah, yeah. It's like a room full of failures, right? Here, interesting thing, at the 11 o'clock today, we, we did that thing, you know, almost every single hand was up. The only hands that weren't up were people who weren't listening. They certainly would have raised their hands. If we did that thing, and I watched like, people get up and leave. They're like grabbing stuff and going out the door. Like, I don't want to be in a room full of failures. You know? So they hit the door, and they were gone. Anyone want to leave now? Just kidding. Just kidding. It is safe to say that we are a room full of failures, a room full of people who fail. And it doesn't matter what kind of failure it is. It could be a job failure, relationship failure, failure to be a good friend to somebody, a financial failure, business collapse. 
failure to meet some standard that you've set out there for yourself, maybe a spiritual failure of some kind, the kind of failure where you feel like you've somehow failed God or so. There's all kinds of failure, no doubt, represented by all those hands being raised. And this one is a really big one. And like, don't raise your hand, but like sexual failure is like a real deal. Like no hand, like sit on your hands. Don't raise your hand about this one, okay? Sexual failure. Because lots and lots of people get to this place where they're entirely disillusioned about sex in dating relationships, right? It's not at all uncommon for me to have conversations with single people. They've slept with more people than they can even think about, even count or so. And so many of them land in this place where they go like, what's the use? They just throw up their hands and go, what's the use? What's the use? For a whole bunch of them, the conventional wisdom goes something like this. They say, once I failed sexually with one person, I thought, well, I blew that. I blew that. I failed to save myself for the person with whom I would spend my entire life with. So with the next person I dated and the next person I dated and the next person I dated, I just thought, well, what's the difference? Why does it matter? I already failed, so why would I ever even try to go back to square one? Why would I even try to go back to sexual purity? And I just want to say, like, when I hear that, I want to, like, jump out of my skin and say that's an incredibly low view of God, isn't it? It's an incredibly low view of God and how he works in people. It's just a low view of God. Let me illustrate what that view of God, sort of how it plays out if you run it out. I want you to pretend with me, if you will, that this pottery picture uh, is you, right? And you're all, like, shined up, made in Montana, right out here on Gallatin Road, Dave Lockie and company. These are just beautiful pictures, right? And this, this is you. You're all shined up and all baked up in the best sense of the word, baked up, right? And here you are. You're like cruising through life and life is good. And then one day you, you fail. doesn't matter what kind of failure, business, relationship, financial, spiritual, right? the kind of failure where you feel like you've somehow Fail God. Maybe it was a sexual failure of some kind. You're just bebopping through life and everything's really good, and then all of a sudden, oh, you fail. Right? And in this view of God, the, the images that God then says, oh, okay, well, I better scoop up all the pieces of Brian in his failure. And here's Brian now. Right? All the exploded bits, or at least a whole bunch of them, there's a whole bunch I couldn't sweep up. And here's Brian. And in that view of God, the perspective is that, well, God just sees me as a broken pitcher. Once broken, always broken. Like God somehow has to carry the broken pieces of them around in a dustpan for the rest of their lives because they're just too broken to gather all up and this is life. This is the view that a whole bunch of people hold of failure and God and what happens. But again, let me ask you, what kind of view of God is this? If you've been around the church very long at all, you know that we say that God is like all-powerful and that Jesus is the great physician and that Jesus is the mender of broken hearts and that Jesus can set anything right that needs to be set right and that Jesus is the redeemer of everything. But then there's a whole bunch of people who are going around with this kind of a view of God Believing that God sees them as once broken, always broken, like a piece of pottery. But that's not God. That's not who he is. That's not what he does. That's not how he views you and me and our failure. Instead, can I reframe this for you? 
Instead, here's exactly what God does, is when we fail, he looks at us certainly as broken people because we are, we're all broken people, broken as a result of sin and failure of every kind. Broken people though, whom he makes, get this, brand spanking new. Brand spanking new. This is you under the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, made brand spanking new. And he enables us, all of us, to start over again. He enables all of us to be as clean and new and as unblemished as when you first began. This is you. It's not this, and it's not that. It's this. Brand spanking new. Knew the psalmist said it this way, Psalm 103, verse 12. He, that's God, has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. This is us. Brand new as far as the east is from the west. And have you ever thought, have you ever considered how far the east is from the west? It's as far as you can imagine anything being absolutely the most distant from each other possible. And the psalmist says they've been removed that far. They could not be further removed. God's put them away and they're so far removed that they cannot in any way affect you any longer. They're put away, gone, done. The author of the Hebrews says it this way. Chapter 10, verse 17, I will never, from God's perspective, God talking, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. And so when you think about it and you go like, okay, if this is the perspective that some of us have of God's view of our failure, that he's carrying us around in a dustpan, all the broken pieces, and here we are, once broken, always broken, how does God forget the thing that caused our brokenness if this is our view? He doesn't. Instead, he makes you all together brand new. Beautiful, pure, set apart. And he forgets the sin and he forgets the failure altogether. In chapter 10, verse 22 of Hebrews, for our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean and our bodies have been washed with pure water. You're new. In the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, you're brand spanking new. And so you take those three texts from the Bible and you sort of assemble them all together. You have these three really powerful word pictures that reveal this amazing truth that when a person, any of us, asks God through Christ Jesus to forgive us, the reality is that he makes you completely new. You're not just glued back together even. Not just glued back together even. You're whole, you're clean, you're washed with the very purest water and whatever you may have done is forgotten and put away as far as the east is from the west. And in case you doubt those three other texts, here's just one more, Romans chapter eight, verse one. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Those who belong 
to Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter. Whatever your failures are, they're in the past. They don't doom you to future failure. They're gone. You can be made new. You're not ruined. You're not damaged goods just because you've failed in the past. You can be made clean again. You can be pure again. And as God does all of that in your life, it's in that very place of newness that you can drive a stake deep into the ground and commit with God's help and strength to remain new, to not ever go there again. I'm not going there anymore. And here's the thing, especially when it comes to sexual sin, sexual failure, when you've gone further than God wants you to go. You see, when you're forgiven, when you're made brand new, when you've gone from being in a million pieces to being made brand new, that newness and that clean slate, you know what it is? It serves as a really powerful boundary for us. A really, really powerful line in the sand where we go, you know, I've got all kinds of new, solid footing to stand on. There aren't any cracks in this brand new picture that cause you to feel dirty from your past or to say, why bother since I've already failed? What you have is a brand new you from which you can become all about wholeness, not just brokenness. And that's great news. It is the best news possible, actually. God acted graciously, God acted decisively via Christ to deal with my failure, your failure, my sin, your sin in our lives. It's the very best news you can possibly imagine. Jesus forgives through his death and his rising and get this, he promises to do so much more in all of us. And the so much more is this truth that right now, as you sit here, God is at work in the lives of his children to do this amazing thing, which is to remove sin from your experience. You get that? God's working now, he's working overtime, double time, however you wanna say it, to cleanse and purify and transform us so that we can live to be more like Christ in every single thing we do. Our values, our decisions, our actions, It's what John meant when he wrote about Jesus in 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. And you know that Jesus came to take away our sins. We're not just managing sin. It isn't just about being on your very best behavior, putting on this great image of, yes, I've got it all together. But Jesus came to actually take away our sin. And here's how it works. Once you cross the line of faith in Jesus Christ, there is this once-for-all newness that Jesus bestows on we who are his followers. We talked about it last word. It's this great big theological term. It starts with a J. Do you remember the word? Justification. One of you paid attention. I'm a failure. Yes, I'm a failure. Failure to communicate. Justification, right? That great exchange. My sin for his righteousness. It's justification once for all time. And at the same time, there is this process, an ongoing process of transformation that God is unfolding in the lives of every single one of his children. Do you know this theological term? It starts with an S, big weighty word. Sanctification is, you cheated, it was on the screen. Yes, you're right, sanctification. And it's this really big, weighty word, but it breaks down into littler words which all relate to the concept of holiness. And you know what holiness is all about, right? It's all about difference. 
Holy things are different from everything else. For example, would you ever cook with the same instrument that you use to clean a toilet? No. You would, no. Because the toilet cleaning instruments are like over there, kept far, far away from the kitchen. If you ever hope to have me over to eat or eat your, right? They're way over there. This set apart, disgusting thing that happens, the cleaning of the toilet. Some of you, like Brian, could you just stop talking about the cleaning of the toilets, please? And then there's cooking instruments that are set apart over here. Special purpose. Holy things are different from everything else. And sanctification is the process of holiness that's meant to characterize the lives of we who know and follow and claim Jesus Christ. We are to be different people living different lives because we belong to Jesus. And when you started following Jesus, God immediately and entirely set you apart as belonging to him, making you holy, and then continuing on all throughout the journey of life and faith, sanctification is the process of growth and transformation, and it goes on and on and on. Growth is the normal state for every follower of Jesus Christ as long as we're alive. It's what we do as followers of Jesus. We grow and we grow and we grow. Not growing is the exception, or at least should be the exception to what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, not the norm. Think about all the things in this world that just grow. Children, they grow up. Plants, if you have any idea what you're doing with plants, they normally grow. Healthy churches, they, they grow. They aren't just little huddles, holy huddles of us for no more. Healthy churches, they grow. Healthy businesses grow. Healthy marriages grow. So do followers of Jesus Christ. We grow. It's what we do. It's who we are. We grow. But the bummer is that even as followers of Jesus Christ, growing, maturing followers of Jesus Christ, we will never entirely outgrow our sin nature. And you're right, that's a huge bummer. We will never entirely outgrow our sin nature. We will not ever arrive at a complete state of Christ-likeness in this life. No matter how much progress, no matter how much growth we experience, we will always struggle with sin this side of heaven. Jesus one day was teaching his disciples to pray. It's an account that's recorded in Matthew chapter 6. The disciples, they had been watching Jesus pray, and after he prayed, like amazing things happened, right? And so they're like, man, we need like a clinic about this prayer deal. Because Jesus, when Jesus prays, it's spectacular stuff happens. And so they go to Jesus and they're like, okay, Jesus, will you give us a download, please, of this whole prayer thing? Because we want to pray like you pray, because cool stuff happens after you pray. And so Jesus puts on this little prayer session, this little prayer clinic. And in that prayer clinic, one of the things that he teaches his disciples, and really he's teaching us as well, is look, when you pray, always pray for the forgiveness of your sins. Right in the Lord's Prayer, pray for the forgiveness of your sins. And have you ever noticed where in the Lord's Prayer, as we call it, Jesus put that instruction to pray for the forgiveness of our sin? You ever notice where he places it in there? He put it right after the instruction where we're to pray for our daily bread. Did you notice that? And so it goes like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be 
Thy name, I used to be a United Methodist youth pastor, and so I learned it in the King James Version because I had to lead the congregation, long flowing robe, and I would lead the congregation in it. Picture that. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what's he say next? Give us this day our daily bread, right? So we're actually to rely on God, not Costco, for our sustenance, right? It all comes from God, ultimately, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Jesus is implying something there, and he's implying that we have this need. Every single one of us has this need every single day to ask God to forgive us, just like we're to ask God every day to provide for our daily provision of food. Every single day I need food, just like every single day I need the forgiveness of God. Every single day. And we'll never outgrow that battle against sin and our need to be forgiven for it, ever. I've had the unique vantage point in my life to be around some people, a few people, who have claimed not to have sinned in like 10 or 15, 20, 25 years or so. And every single time Dana tells me that she hasn't sinned in some number of years, it's not Dana. She's never said that, just to be clear. But I have actually been around some other people who have claimed not to have sinned in decades. I've met some of them. And whenever I hear one of these people say stuff like, you know, I haven't sinned since 1987, I want to, like, raise my hand, and because and, I have all these sinful parts still inside of me, and so I want to raise my hand, and I want to say, you just did, right? You just lied. Like, reset the counter, buddy, you get your one-day chip right now because you're starting all over. Back to day one. First John is really, really clear where John says, look, if you claim to be without sin, if you claim to be without sin, what's John say? You're actually deceiving yourselves. And he actually goes on to say that the truth probably isn't even in you if you're so deceived to say that you haven't sinned, that you don't. Sin, that truth applies to every single follower of Jesus Christ for the entirety of our lives. Which means for us, there is this progressive, lifelong process of sanctification. And you know what it does for us? Or you know what it can do for us? Is it actually can help adjust our expectations when it comes to failure in our lives. And not adjust them upward, but actually adjust them downward. And let me show you where I'm going here. Absolutely. There is a lifelong struggle against sin that every follower of Jesus Christ is engaged in. But at the same time, God is at work in us to change us. We should expect growth. We should do everything in our power to work and strive and pursue God and grow because the very same God who makes us brand new, the very same God who calls us to very high standards of holiness is the same God who lives inside of us, empowering us to say no to sin and to pursue virtues of Christ-like character and life. That's God. And that's encouraging, and that's motivating. Think about it. God's at work in you right now. 
God's changing you right now. He's doing stuff in you right now. He's speaking to you right now. He's leading you right now. He's asking obedience of you right now. And absolutely, it's difficult, isn't it? Some days, if we're honest, we go like, is it really worth it? I just feel like throwing in the towel. I feel like quitting. But we don't quit. We press on. Why? Because God himself is at work, and it's worth it. He's worth it. And so I raise all this to say, look, there's no room in Christianity for any follower of Jesus Christ to ever say, well, that's just the way I am. It's always going to be that way. I'll always have that struggle. I'm going to be plagued by that thing for the rest of my life. There is not room for that kind of despairing pessimism in the life of any follower of Jesus Christ. There is no room for that. Because what's true is that God is gracious and God is powerful and God is big enough and he is strong enough to change you from the thing you are today to what he desires for you to become tomorrow. There's hope. Not because of anything that's inside of you, but because of God's full commitment to change you and make you entirely and completely and totally new. And here's why I'm talking about this today and here's where all this lands and we're going to finish here, if we get this, if we get it here and if we get it here, that God has made us entirely new when he justified us via the death and rising of his one and only son, Jesus Christ. And then if we also get that he is progressively sanctifying us, he's progressively making us more and more and more holy, more and more and more like him. And I just want to sort of insert this parenthesis right here and say everything I'm about to say for the next few minutes is really, really dangerous. It is really, really dangerous. The stuff I'm about to talk about is not at all spoken widely in the church because it can so easily be abused. It can so very easily be misunderstood. And so I'm going to ask you kindly to not abuse it and not misunderstand. But if all that's true, if God once for all made us new, if he's then progressively making us more and more holy, this is where it gets dangerous right here then we can, here's the word, relax. Then we can relax. And you see why this is so incredibly dangerous to talk like this, because like that fast, this can be abused. But the idea that God is downloading to us is that we can relax, and we can toss off the pressure that so many Christians feel to be, and here's the word, perfect. You've felt it, haven't you? And I believe that one of the greatest burdens that Christians carry to this very day is the pressure from other Christians to be perfect or at least appear to be perfect. We've, we've all felt it. And the word I use to describe it, I've felt it. The word I use to describe it is it's stifling. So stifling. And not only is it stifling, and not only is it a weight that no one can reasonably bear up under, but it's so entirely counterproductive to everything that it means to allow God to change us into his image. The external pressure on us as followers of Jesus Christ to appear to be perfect or at least represent ourselves as being perfect, you know what it does is it focuses the attention on ourselves 
It causes us to say, well, look at me. Aren't I something? Look at how I'm doing everything that I'm supposed to be doing. I've got it all together. But that's the very egocentric self-focus that's at the heart of the very sin that Jesus is trying every single day to undo in us, to sanctify out of us, isn't it? Ancient theologians described our bent toward sin this way. They said our bent toward sin is being curved in on ourselves. Ever heard that line? Curved in on ourselves. Think about it like an ingrown toenail, right? It's really gross and it's all pussy and, right? It's this nasty view. Curved in on ourselves. It's a fantastic image. And here's the thing about that image. Making progress in our struggle with this bent toward self-centeredness will not ever come from turning up the pressure to be more perfect. Relax. Relax. Because you see, when we relax, when we throw off, cast off, do away with the perfectionistic expectations, we can be set free to look away from ourselves, to take our eyes off of us and look fully on God, look fully on the power of his spirit that continues to change us day by day by day by day, more into the people he wants us to become. Get this, all in his time. Not our time, his time. And it's almost this paradoxical thing that our ownership of the reality that we will never be set totally free from sin in this life actually causes us to take one of the most significant steps toward growth that Christ ever wants any of his followers to attain. This remarkable paradox. I ran across something this week that author Jean Blomquist wrote as she reflected on really quite spectacular failure that she'd experienced. And she said it this way, failure can be a relief. (laughs) Whoa, that's candid, isn't it? She goes on, when I could honestly admit without denigrating myself that I could never be perfect, I could finally get off my own back, she writes. In doing so, I became freer to use and explore the gifts God gave me. I became more accepting of my work, more willing to try new things. I became, get this, less judgmental, more compassionate, more encouraging. And she finishes by saying, others' weaknesses were no longer indictments of my own weaknesses, but instead became possible places for healing, cooperation, and growth. God's freedom, God's relief, God's hope, really do come from genuinely accepting ourselves along with the inevitable struggle with sin that is universal to what it means to be a human being. And it's humbling to admit. It's incredibly humbling to admit that as long as I live, I will continue to struggle, that I will never be fully and finally master over sin until I see Jesus face to face. But in grace, There is humility. In humility, there is grace. There's joy as well. And God says, relax. 
take the pressure off of your shoulders, whether it's self-inflicted or other-inflicted, take the pressure off of our shoulders and transfer that burden of God's transformation onto him. The broad, full, strong, capable shoulders of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And at that point, in that moment, the truth sets us free to continue to grow and make progress and live and love as Christ would have us to live and love in this world, even in the midst of our most abysmal failure. Relax. He's doing it. It's up to him. He's at work. He's changing us. He's not done. He's not quitting. He's not throwing in the towel. Let him take it in the order that he wishes to take it. Take your stuff and set it aside if you would. And I just invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads and go to prayer. And give yourself to some reflection, perhaps around these two questions. What's God saying to you today? What's God saying to you today and what are you going to do with that? perhaps for some of you your action step today is all about you inviting Jesus to make you brand new inviting Jesus to be your savior once and for all maybe you've been a person who's held the view that you're the piece of broken pottery and the dustpan and God's seeing you as once broken always broken just sort of carrying you around in this dustpan but the truth is that God wants to make you brand new new, entirely new, whole. Not just glued bits all put back together, but brand new. And if that's you today, you can take the really bold step of crossing the line of faith in Jesus by praying with me. I invite you to pray along with me. Say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I've been playing a really good game and I've been putting on a really good show like I've had it all together. Like I'm somehow good enough, righteous enough. But what's true, Jesus, is that I need you. I need you to be my savior, my once for all time savior. And so here I am, trusting you, yielding my heart and life to you thanking you for dying on the cross in my place. Thank you for rising from the dead. Thank you so much, Jesus, for bearing my sin and for giving me the gift of eternal life. I trust you, Jesus, with my everything. Make me new. And if that's you today, if you're one who's crossing the line of faith in Jesus Christ, that's the biggest deal ever for you such a big deal that around here we invite people to tell us when they make that decision to tell us when they've crossed the line of faith in Jesus Christ and I'm going to ask you to do that with me right now if you did 
Every head is bowed, every eye, nobody's looking around this room. It's a private moment, you, me, and God looking on. If you prayed with me just then, cross the line of faith in Jesus, would you be so bold as to just slip your hand up right now and lock eyes with me? You can do it right now. Just let me agree with you, stand with you, and you're, yeah, in the back, way to go. You're being made brand new right now. And here, you're being made brand new right now. Yes. And it's not about anything that you've done. It's all about him and what he's doing. What he did for you. Jesus, thank you so much for the saving, redeeming work that you've done here in this room right now with these. Thank you. And God, thank you so much for the sanctifying work that you're doing in all of us, every single one of us, moment by moment by moment by moment. And Jesus, there's lots and lots of days where we go like, oh, Lord, please, would you please deal with that once and for all? Would you please deal with me on that? Change me, fix me. And yet, God, when you don't seem to take things in the order that we wish you would, we still trust you, and we still cling to you, and we still pursue you, and we still wait on you. And it doesn't mean that we're just sitting back passive waiting for you to do it all. We're in pursuit, hot pursuit of you, Jesus. God, we're also waiting on you to do what only you can do, to rend the transformation that only you can render in our hearts and lives. Because you're God. And it's what you do. And we can't wait, Jesus, to see you face to face. And we can't wait for all of that stuff to be done with once and for all. What a day that will be. And Jesus, until then, we follow you. And we cling real tightly to you. Because we need you. We desperately need you, Jesus. Jesus.